chapter 10, and then also to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Thank you, Brother Soros, for the invitation to come to this meeting this week. I'm honored and delighted to be here. It's always a privilege to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of the location. I want to applaud Brother and Sister Soros for the continuation of this meeting. Our churches need together like this to feel the touch of the Lord that has already touched this service tonight. Thank you, Brother MacDonald. And it's nice to see Brother Grisham. God bless you, Brother Grisham. Other ministering brethren, I greet you in the name of the Lord. The book of Mark, chapter 10, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. I come to you with a tremendous burden to preach this message. I haven't come to be a particular inspired blessing to anyone, but I trust that before my time that has allotted me is finished, that my comments will prove to give you direction relative to your walk with God. The book of Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. When Jesus was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled down to him and asked, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Notice he dropped the good. He just called him master this time. He answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. I want to emphasize two important facts. The young man running to Jesus asked, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus urged him to sell all that he had, distribute it to the poor, take up the cross, and follow him. It's important that I share with you that the young man was inquiring about eternal life, the crown of life. Jesus told him the price for the crown, the price for eternal life, was the cross. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is identifying something very important to the Corinthian church in verse 17. When he wrote the Corinthians with these words, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. For many days I've been overwhelmed with the importance of my preaching about the cross. It's not a sermon that will always make a shout, because the cross of Jesus was a bloody, bloody scene. It was a brutal scene. However, fixed in all our hearts is a desire to wear the crown. But it's falling my ministerial responsibility to advise this audience that before you wear the crown, you must carry the cross. And I hope that before I'm finished, if you've put down your cross, you'll find it. Find it. Before the revival, there is a price to be paid. Before Jericho falls, Joshua and the armies must march. Before Goliath is slain, a shepherd must sling the stone. Before the promotion to prime minister of Egypt, there must be years by Joseph in the Egyptian dungeon. And before the Pentecostals of the decade of the 90s have truly an apostolic move of God, there is a price that must be paid. Tonight I give to you as God has given to me, before the crown, you must carry the cross. Would you pray with me in Jesus' name? may be seated. Most of us know very little, if anything, about the written contents of the Declaration of Independence. Our nation was born on a pledge made by 56 men who felt that freedom and liberty was worth fighting for and, if necessary, dying for. The 56 names that signed the Declaration, their signature would change the course of history. They agreed unanimously that we mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Thomas Jefferson, one of the youngest of the signatories on that great declaration, a young man of only 33 years, separated himself for 17 days into ultimate privacy. And after 17 days, he stepped forward to read what has been considered the greatest document of political and social freedom that has ever been written by man. King George III of England 
denounced the 56 men that signed that document as traitors and announced in England and let the word seep to New England that when arrested, these 56 men would perish by hanging. Carter Braxton of Virginia, who was a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept away to sea to pay his debts. He lost his home and his properties, and he died a beggar in rags. All that for liberty and all that for freedom. Thomas Lynch, Jr., who made that sacred pledge for honor and esteem, was a third-generation rice grower. He was an aristocrat. He owned a large plantation. But after he signed that declaration that was first read on the 4th of July of 1776, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, his health fell, and with his wife he set sail to France, never to regain his health, in fact, never to be heard from again. It is believed that Thomas Lynch, Jr. died on the high seas of the Atlantic, the results of signing the Declaration of Independence. Vandals looted the homes of Clary and Clember, Hall and Wynette, Walton and Hayward, Rutledge and Middleton, because of a price to be paid for freedom and for liberty. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served the Continental Congress without pay. His family lived in poverty. His family hid, hid in, lived in hiding as vagabonds and fugitives. The cost for freedom and the cost for liberty. Thomas Nelson Jr. of Virginia raised $2 million on his own signature to secure provisions for the new fledged nation. After the war, he personally paid back the loans to the French, but his own estate was wiped out. He was never reimbursed by the new government. In the final battle for York, he stood shoulder to shoulder with General George Washington and to the top of his lungs he cried, General, General Washington, fire on my home, burn it to the ground, let, let York and Cornwallis be once and for all defeated. I have given my all, my pledge, my honor for freedom and for liberty. He died in bankruptcy and he never was able to reinvest himself into a happy life. The British captured the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything that he owned destroyed. His wife was put into prison. She died a few months thereafter. Richard Stockton signed the declaration. He was captured. He was mistreated. His health broke to the extent that he died a young man of only 51 years of age. Thomas Hayward was captured when Charlestown fell. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed and his family scattered. Philip Livingston died a few months after the war because of the hardships that he suffered. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside when she lay a-dying. Their thirteen children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields and his gristmills were laid waste. For more than a year, Mr. Hart lived in the forest 
and in caves. After the war, he returned to his old home place only to find it destroyed in rubble and in ruin. He found that his property was gone. His 13 children were forever to be lost from him. Last but not least, he found his wife to be dead. He found her crude grave, threw his body over her deathly remains, and history teaches us that he died a young man because of a broken heart. All this for liberty, all this for freedom, all this for the sacred honor. John Hancock, with his weeping signature, signed that independence document. He was one of the wealthiest men of New England. John Hopkins stood outside Boston one terrible night, and he cried to the top of his lungs, Burn, Boston! Burn, Boston, burn. If it cost me everything that I've got, I would rather die a free man and a pauper than to live a wealthy man and to be enslaved by the royal crown of England. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you for your consideration that of the 56 men that signed that document, 24 of them were lawyers and jurists. 11 of them were merchants. Nine were farmers and owned large plantation, but they pledged their honor, they pledged their life, and they pledged their sacred honor. If they would have known what this war would have brought them, they may not have wanted to sign that document on July 4, 1776. But together they pledged, life is worth dying for. Freedom is worth dying for. Even if it cost us our wealth, our fortune, our name, and our future, we will have liberty. I have come to the apostolics on this, the fifth night of May, the year of 1993, in the year of our Lord I have not come to be bound I have not come to be shackled for where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty and he who the Son hath set free is free indeed the Lord has called us out of darkness into this marvelous light you have a God given right to magnify the Lord you have a God given right to glorify the Lord for you've been justified and you've been sanctified and you've been filled with the Holy Ghost you've had your sins washed away in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ I come to tell you that greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world let's have church a while tonight I wonder if those 56 signatories would have dreamed in their wildest dreams what America would be tonight. Only some 200 and some, what, uh, 17 years since the signing of that declaration. It's not the same America that they pledged their lives for. In America today, crime costs the American taxpayers over $2 billion annually. There's a serious crime on the streets of America every 3.3 seconds. There's a murder in America every 23 minutes. Pornography is an $8 billion a year industry. 280 magazine publications support child pornography. Television is another 
another subject. I won't take time to talk about television statistics, but I've come to advise you that if you pray through and if you pray a lot, you've got no time for New York and Fifth Avenue and Hollywood and a make-believe life. I present to you the real thing. I present to you the real life. Life in Christ Jesus. The America that the 56 men signed for today houses 1 million heroin addicts, 43 million are habitual users of marijuana, and that could be a low estimate by the experts. Untold millions are bound by cocaine, crack, and various addictive substances. 50 million confirmed alcoholics in America, 165 million affected by alcoholism in some way or form. 200,000 200, alcoholics between the ages of 9 and 11 out of 6.5 million high school students in America over half of them were drunk within the last 5 days the 56 men that signed that document it was not their plan for this nation to be sin riddled and corrupt as it is but this is what we have ladies and gentlemen I'm glad to tell you and to announce to America that where Sin doth abound. Grace doth much more abound. 65 million sexual perverts in America. Over 20 million Americans are living together in a homosexual or a sodomite relationship. Over two and a half million new cases of social diseases a year. And now the storm of AIDS continues to gather its dark thunder clouds over the course of American society. Ladies and gentlemen, the answer is not found in the state houses of Little Rock. The state houses of Jackson, the state houses of Baton Rouge, and the state houses of Montgomery. It's not found in the legislative halls of Washington, D.C. It's not to be found in the Oval Office. But I would present to America, and I would present to this revival conference, the answer was found at the old rugged cross. The answer was found at the old rugged cross. Forty-five hundred abortions a day, a hundred and thirty-five thousand a month, one point seven million a year, and we call it birth control in society. I beg your pardon, sir. It's not birth control. It's murder. That's not too kosher anymore in America. But I want to advise you that now the next great rage of controlling the population explosion of America will be infanticide. When a baby is born severely deformed or severely retarded, not to become a financial liability to the government, they will opt to take the life of that deformed and mentally retarded baby. America, wake up! Wake up! This is not what 56 men signed for. This is not what they pledged their honor and their sacred duty for. Not this kind of America.
barbaric. Last but not least, we're going to be faced with a social condition of euthanasia. When those that are on social security can no longer take care of themselves, I would present to you for your consideration that the old timers are going to go through a mercy death, if you please, a mercy killing. If my voice could be heard in the office of the Republican Party and the office of the Democratic Party, I plead with the Supreme Justices, stop abortion, stop infanticide, stop euthanasia. We will come to you. We have the answer. It's time to come to the days of Joel, one of the temple prophets of the Old Testament. It's time to blow a trumpet in Zion. It's time to sanctify a fast. It's time to call a solemn assembly. It's time to gather the people. It's time to sanctify the congregation. It's time to assemble the elders. It's time to gather the children. It's time for the bridegroom to go forth from his chamber and the bridegroom from her closet. It's time for the priest to stand between the porch and the altar and cry, Have mercy, Lord! Have mercy! And give not thine heritage to reproach. My, my. I said, my, my. Hi. Praise the Lord. I said, praise the Lord. Now, you're not waiting on me, honey. I'm waiting on you. I said, praise the Lord. You see, because of the situation in Israel, some 750 years before the birth of the Messiah, Israel socially, Israel politically, Israel materially, Israel spiritually was at an all-time low. And God sent His great army to plunder the land. That which the locusts did not destroy, the cankerworm devoured. That which the cankerworm didn't devour, then the caterpillar got. And that which the caterpillar left then the palmer worm got and the Lord said to the preacher blow a trumpet ladies and gentlemen it's not time for Pentecost to become orthodox it's not time for Pentecost to become ceremonial it's not time for Pentecost to become ritualistic if there was ever a time that we need to make a joyful noise unto the Lord and to announce to a depressed nation that there's still a God that sits on the throne. There's still a church that's without spot and without wrinkle and without any such thing. We need to do that now. The locust, the canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm in a spiritual dimension has devoured the American society. You can look at me and agree with much patriotism when I make that statement. But now I'll see who's with me now. But in the spirit realm, there is a spirit of the locust. There's a spirit of the canker worm. There's a spirit of the caterpillar. And there's a spirit of the palmer worm that's coming to the Pentecostal family of America. It's eaten away at our message of one God. It's eaten away at our message of the plan of salvation. 
repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. It's eaten away at our worship. It's eaten away at our praise. It's eaten away at our commitment. Last but not least, it is eating away at our holiness standards. But as one sweaty, proud preacher, I come with a voice like a trumpet. We're not going to go down without a fight. There's still but one God here, O Israel. The Lord thy God is one Lord. Don't you forget it. It still takes repentance. I said it still takes repentance. You don't get the Holy Ghost without it. We can teach them how to speak glossolalia. <laughs> oh, we want to. But they don't speak in tongues until after they repent of their sins. It still takes water baptism in Jesus' name. I don't think I'm championing a cause tonight, but any old baptism or formula will not get the job done. For there is none of the name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And I'm not asking for your class demonstrations. I'm not appealing to you for your response. But if you want to, then bless your heart, help yourself. But I want to say this also, that this is no time to fold our arms and sleep on the comfortable pews of the Pentecostal churches. This is the time to come together in one mind and one accord, making a joyful noise, magnifying the Lord, glorifying His name. Let's clap our hands unto the Lord. I have taken the sum first 20 minutes of my allotted time to tell you that we did not get America by snapping our fingers. It was not just a great brain, political brain thrust that we have this wonderful, amazing nation that we have tonight. There was sacrifice. There was commitment. There was sickness. There was affliction. There was handicap. There was death. It didn't come easy. There was commitment. And Pentecostals, I have come to tell you that we're not what we are tonight because we learn how to preach. Or we learn how to sing. Or we learn how to promote. Or we learn how to build buildings. Or we learn how to have Sunday school. The great old timers that blazed the trail before us, they gave their health. They gave their life. They gave their finances. And in 1993, I'm a 47-year-old man. But I'm not going to sit back and watch Satan come in our churches and rob us of our message. And rob us of our worship. And rob us of the gifts of the Spirit and rob us of the fruit of the Spirit and rob us of our holiness. There's been too much sacrifice in this. 
Without the clapping of hands, I want you to worship the Lord. The ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus was a cross ministry. His was not a crown ministry. I challenge you, Bible scholar, go home and review it tonight. You will find, as I did, that not one time will you find that Jesus ever used the word crown in his entire earthly ministry. You won't find him using crown in Matthew. You won't find him using crown in Mark. You won't find him using crown in Luke. Nor will you find him using crown in the book of John. As a matter of fact, the only two times that Jesus Christ refers to crown was after his ascension. He gave a promise to the church of Smyrna and a promise to the church of Philadelphia about a crown. But never on this earth did he have a crown ministry. The only crown that Jesus was acquainted with was a crown planted out of thorns that was crushed on his brow but before his thorny crown he definitely had a cross ministry he preached in Matthew 10 verses 37 and 38 he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and he that taketh not his cross not his crown his cross not his crown Jesus wasn't promoting that Dime store crowns. He wasn't passing out dime store crowns, but he promoted a cross, a cross, a cross. He that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In Matthew 16 and 24, then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his crown. No, 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 not his crown, not his crown but deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me brother pastor you're not going to have your revival until you carry your cross sister pastor's wife you're not going to have your revival until you carry your cross we're not going to reach our cities until we carry the cross we're not going to affect Arkansas and Oklahoma and Mississippi and Louisiana and all of America until Till we learn to carry the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. <laughs> Jesus was a cross bearer. The Bible says in John 19 and 17, and he bearing his cross went forth into the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. I fear that for too long we've passed the burden and the responsibility of a move of God to someone else. We're concerned more about if our name is in the headlines. 
We're concerned more about if somebody's going to shake our hand and congratulate us. Ladies and gentlemen, I will not be offended at all if no one comes to me after any sermon that I preach and congratulate me because it is not I. I'm only reflecting the love of God. I'm not preaching for congratulations. I'm not preaching for honor and glory. But I'm here because I have determined to know nothing among you. Save Jesus Christ. Save Jesus Christ. Save Jesus Christ. And Him crucified. Yes, I'll have to freely admit the Bible speaks of crowns. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 25, Paul writes about the incorruptible crown. 2 Timothy 4 and 8, he speaks of the crown of righteousness. James in chapter 1 and verse 12 speaks about the crown of life. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, he speaks about the crown of glory. But you and I are trapped in a mindset. We see the blessings. We see the honor. We see the prestige. We see the glory. But we must understand that before any move of God, there's a cross. There's a cross. There's a cross. Thank you Paul for advising me. You told me in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks it was foolishness. And I very carefully wound my way through that eloquent passage that Paul wrote. The cross was a stumbling block and the cross was foolishness. Is not that the very case in Bible-rich America today? The preaching of the cross doesn't turn us on anymore. We want some high-powered, jet-setted, rocket-boosted sermon to come to our church and tell us how good we are and how good we're doing it and how great we are. But I've come to tell you, I have come with one sermon. The cross. The cross. I am what I am. And you are what you you are because on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. We see Jesus turning the water into wine, and his wine was better than the best from the vine. We see Jesus turning darkness to light when the blind received their sight. Jesus turned the silence to sound when the deaf's ear on hearing was found. When Jesus touched the cripple's frame, the cripples were no longer lame. Peace, he spoke to the wind and wave. Immediately his voice they did obey, but what we don't understand, that before he overcame the elements and physical handicaps and demonic possession, he knew what it was like to go to a wilderness, fast 40 days and nights, overcome Satan, overcome temptation. But Pentecost, to my generation, we want a hocus-pocus Pentecost. 
We want to name it and claim it Pentecost. We want an ease of believism Pentecost. We want to blab it and grab it Pentecost. I'm here to tell you precious people, and you are a beautiful audience tonight, we're not going to put on the production of the seven sons of Sceva. That's a joke in heaven. That's a joke in the earth. And that's a joke in hell. But if we take the name, if we take the name... Jesus casts the devils out of Gadara Cemetery. And don't you forget it. I say Jesus cast the devils out of Gadara Cemetery. But he also cast the devils out of Capernaum Synagogue. Jesus healed the paws of Capernaum. But he also healed the lame of Bethesda. Jesus is the one that restores the prodigal son. Jesus is the one that finds the lost coin. And Jesus is the one that carries the lost sheep. Jesus is moved with compassion for the wounded traveler. Jesus is the one that goes to where the wounded traveler is. Jesus is the one that pours in the oil and the wine. Jesus is the one that binds the wounds. Jesus is the one that puts him on his own beast and takes him to an end and takes care of him and pays all of his medical costs. I find it all in Jesus. Jesus is the one that healed the nobleman's son. And Jesus is the one that resurrects the widow's son. Jesus cleansed the dirty leper and Jesus rebuked the self-righteous Pharisee. Jesus heals one lady of fever and Jesus heals another of the bloody issue. Jesus delivers the Syrophoenician's daughter and Jesus raises Jairus's daughter. Jesus healed Jericho's blind and Jesus healed Bethsaida's blind. To sum it up, Jesus fixed the blind eyes. Jesus fixed the deaf ears. Jesus fixed the crippled feet. Jesus fixed the lame legs. Jesus fixed the withered hand. Jesus fixed the leprous body. Jesus fixed the possessed mind. And Jesus fixed the broken heart. And I've come to tell the revival conference that the same Jesus is alive and well on the fifth day of May, 1983. Whatever your need is, He's here to fix it. You will not understand me if you're not on the same wavelength I'm on in the spirit. A few of you are, I think. I have been warned in the spirit realm by none other than a messenger from Satan himself that there's a few sacred cows that belongs to him that he'd much rather I wouldn't tamper with. But I have chosen to tamper for a few minutes tonight. There's one thing in Pentecost that we're not strong enough to admit. We will admit our cancers. We will admit our coronary disease. We will admit our arthritis and our rheumatisms, our high bloods and our low bloods. We'll admit to our, our lupus and to our diabetes and other various main organ malfunctions of the human anatomy. But one thing that we will not admit and that is we are being battled in Pentecost by a spirit of depression. A spirit of depression. A spirit of fear. A spirit of fear. Afraid to go to bed at night. And then afraid to get up the next morning. 
I haven't come with a damn store expression, but I've come to tell you that it is not the will of God that you take medication to go to sleep and then take medication to get up the next day. I've come to tell you that He is the bright and more... He's the Lamb of God and He's the Good Shepherd. He's the Creator and He's the Creature. He's the Father and He's the Son. He's the King of Kings and He's the Lord of Lords. It's not to the place anymore in preaching conferences, Brother Grisham. And I'm glad to be back with you on another one, Brother Grisham. But it's not to the place anymore because of such great controversy. Some speakers are afraid to say some things in fear that they may offend the conservatives among us. And then you flip that and then some are afraid to say some things in fear that we will offend the liberals among us. Friend, I'm going to make a holy appeal, a sacred appeal. Have convictions. Have strong, God-given convictions. I don't have to read my background. You know me. But I'm not going to be saved by my differences with you. But I'm going to be saved because of a place called Calvary. Where God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. We're in a position of depression. I want to quickly jump on board of the train I'm trying to ride and not lose my way. I want to continue by saying as I follow up my comments about the spirit of depression. Pastors tonight are on the brink of resigning churches. They call me frequently, Brother Charles, not that I'm some great trusted one. Brother Odom, please pray for me. I'm burned out. I'm weary. I drag myself to the pulpit. My mind is blank. My heart is empty. I go through the motion. My prayers are like hitting an iron curtain. My wife is weary. Not long ago, my wife and I had out to dinner. Great friends of ours. My heart was broken as I heard the story. I'm tired. I'm tired, the pastor said. I'm exhausted, the pastor's wife said. If we could just go be a mechanic. If we could just get a job. And there's a preacher in this room tonight. You're feeling the onslaught of that weariness. And not because it's Brother Odom. God perish the thought. But God has sent me to you this night, Pastor, to tell you that the Lord has counted every tear. He's kept a record of every hurting prayer. He's watched you every day you fasted. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. I said, Jesus fixed the blind eyes. Jesus fixed the deaf ears. Jesus fixed the crippled feet. Jesus fixed the lame legs. 
Jesus fixed the leper's body. Jesus fixed the blinded eye and he fixed the deaf ear. Jesus fixed the brokenhearted and Jesus fixed the troubled mind. And some of you might say, well, Brother Odom, are you right where you need to be? No, absolutely not. He's still working on me. It took him just a week to make the sun and the moon, and, and but he's still working on me. But Jesus, fix me. Fix me. Make me what I ought to be. Don't let me be what I want to be. Let me be more like you. Jesus had no place to lay his head, yet he gave the birds a nest, and he gave the foxes a den. When he was thirsty, they gave him vinegar mixed with gall, but when they thirst, he gave them a drink. And with this promise, if you drink of the water that I shall give to you, you will never thirst again. Jesus spoke in Matthew 25, When I was hungry, you gave me no meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was a stranger, you took me not in. When I was naked, you clothed me not. When I was sick, you didn't visit me. When I was in prison, you didn't come to him. All we see are blinded eyes twinkling with sight. All we see see your deaf ears coming to sound. All we see are lame legs walking, crippled feet being fixed. All we see are leper spots disappearing. All we see is a family reunion at Bethany Cemetery. All we see is a squeeze of one fist and bread falls like rain. And the squeeze of another fist and fish falls like rain. All we see is him tiptoeing on the white capped waves of Galilee Sea. But I've come to remind you that behind all that there was a cross there was a sacrifice there was a commitment well you are telling me in your responsiveness by your blank looks that brother Sorrells missed it when he got old him this time you know why you like everybody else you want it cheap you want it dime store style and I'm the same way <laughs> Would somebody in this section right here say, He opened the blinded eyes? Would this section say, He unstopped the deaf ears? Would this section say, He told the lame to walk? Now what got into y'all? I'm not going to leave you out. No discrimination tonight. Would this side say, He raised the dead to life? But in the midst of these wonderful miracles, He was tempted. He was oppressed. He was despised. He was hated. He was betrayed. He was forsaken. He was rejected. He was condemned. He was reviled. He was laughed at. He was persecuted. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was stripped. He was stricken. He was bruised. He was wounded. He was afflicted. He was pierced. He was sacrificed. He was crucified. It didn't come cheap. Yeah, 
with great poetical grandeur, with public pulpit oratory, and with the waxing of eloquence, we can preach the glory of His miracles. But we have little to say about the time he walked near the city that he loved, the city of David, the city of Zion. He couldn't con con contain himself any longer. And looking upon Jerusalem, 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 how oft would I have gathered you as the hen with her chicks, but you would not let me, Jerusalem. At the grave of Lazarus, big drops of tears crested his eyes, rivered down his cheek like a Mississippi river, splashed on his lapel, flooded the ground below him. Not because he was broken hearted about the decease of Lazarus. He had already said he'll live again. But what moved him was the categorization and the classification of unbridled unbelief and doubt. And I fear to say it, but I must because I'm compelling the spirit. It's unbelief that is shackling us. It is doubt that is shackling us. It's not our worldliness. It's not our ungodliness. But we've learned to depend on the arm of the flesh. <laughs> How can any preacher... Especially one as limited as I, as limited as I am, stand before you and to try to draw, try to draw a picture on the canvas of your mind about the gut-wrenching, soul-searching, mind-stressing, physical exhausting prayer of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. You talking about brokenness? You talking about cross time? You talking about gut-check time? Father! If it be possible, let this cup. Friends, if my redneckish, down south, biscuits and gravy style of preaching embarrasses you, I beg your pardon. It ain't no pretty way to put it. Jesus did what he did because he carried a cross. <laughs> carried a cross. Would somebody give me that bass guitar? I need a cross. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He had what he had because he carried a cross. He had no home, no family of his own. Big, great metropolitan cities were practically unknown to him. He was not on my shoulder, sir. He was not schooled in the institutions of higher learning. He carried no diploma. He carried no degrees. He had no certificates and he had no merits to say that he was a graduate from any school of theology. But Jesus did what he did because he learned that the, that the way to real success was carrying a cross. Not me and not you. We want a hocus pocus Pentecost. We want a name it and claim it Pentecost. But I've come to tell you, George Hancock, man, don't you sit back there, clap your hands for Brother Odom. You've heard me preach too many times before. We're going to have it because of a cross. Because of a cross. Because of a cross.
They barred the bed to lay his head. When Christ the Lord came down, they barred the ass in the mountain pass for him to ride to town. But the crown that he wore, the thorny crown, and the cross that he bore were his own. The cross, the cross was his own. He barred the bread when the crowd he fed on the grassy mountainside. He barred the dish of the broken fish with which he satisfied. But the crown that he wore, the crown of thorns, and the cross that he bore were his own. The cross was his own. He barred a ship in which to sit to teach the multitude. He barred a nest in which to rest. He had never had a home so rude. But the crown that he wore, which was a thorny crown, and the cross that he bore was his own. The cross that he bore was his own. He barred a room on his way to the tomb, the Passover lamb to eat. They barred a cave for him a grave. They barred the winding sheet. But the crown that he wore which was a thorny crown. And the cross that he bore were his own. The cross, the cross was his own. Ringing across the mountain sides of my soul tonight, Sister Charles, are old hymns that go like, Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world Go free. No, there is a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart were rolled away. It was there by faith I received my Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Loving Savior, hear my cry, hear my cry. Trembling to thy arms I fly. Oh, save me at the cross. I have sinned, but thou hast died. Thou hast died, thou hast died. In thy mercy let me hide. Oh, save me at the cross. Though I perish, I will pray. I will pray. I will pray, thou of life are giving way. Oh, save me in the cross. Cross. Come on, preacher. Tell us how good we're doing. I am. You missed my message. I am. Come on, preachers. This isn't a time to put your cross down. Come on, church officials. This isn't a time to put the cross down. Come, great lay people. This is no time to lay down the cross. Unfortunately, we have many of our number that are born with the proverbial silver spoon in their mouth. Slick speaking jet setters 
that belong to the fast lane, that never learn nothing but blessings, that never learn sacrifice. I have not come as a prophet of doom. I'm a second generation Pentecostal. My dad was converted just before the Jehovah Witnesses converted him, 1949. My wife and I have two daughters. One is and one is not. The Lord has taken one. They were third generations. Last night I hugged and kissed my grandbaby, a fourth generation Pentecostal. I fear, brother minister and sister minister's wife, that we're developing a generation that doesn't know what it means to pay a price. Do you know, Brother Odom, what it means? I can't tell you that I do. I've never been slammed in jail like Paul and Silas. I've never been beheaded like James. Never, never, never. I've never been threatened like John and like Peter. No, 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 no. I've never been abused. Not me. No, no. I don't know what sacrifice is. But one thing I do know, that we did not come to the 93rd year of this century by just preaching sermons and singing songs and going through the motions. Somebody paid a price. However, we're developing a Solomon generation Mirth, a Solomon generation, pleasure, a Solomon generation, laughter, a Solomon generation, wine, a Solomon generation, folly, a Solomon generation, making great works, building houses, planting vineyards, making gardens and orchards and all kind of fruit trees. A Solomon generation making pools of water. A Solomon generation servants and maidens. A Solomon generation great possessions of cattle. A Solomon generation silver and gold and precious peculiar treasures. A Solomon generation men singers, women singers, delights of the son of men, instruments and delights of music. Whatever mine eyes desired I kept not back from them. We've got it! Truth can be brutal. Truth can be brutal. Brother Howard, would you fix it in a few minutes? Truth can be brutal. We're developing a group of young people across Pentecost that don't remember us crossing Jordan. That don't remember us leaving Egypt. Wandering through the wilderness of Zen for 40 hard hurting years. My God, young people, I want every unmarried young person under the age of 25 to please stand. Every unmarried young person, male or female, under the age of 25, please stand. Look at this precious, beautiful group. It's about time for my generation to prepare itself to hand the baton down to you. No, I'm not ready to turn it all in yet, but soon you'll be doing what I'm doing. In 20 more years at the Lord Terrace, I'll be an afterthought. I'll be an asterisk at the bottom of the page. It'll be your turn to preach, young men. It'll be your turn to be the minister's wives, young lady, to carry the torch. Remember, remember that I told you on May the 5th, 1993, we didn't compromise. We didn't compromise. No. We held the standards. We held the gospel. 
We held the message. Thank you for standing. I hope I didn't embarrass you, but you may be seated. A Solomon generation has it at the snap of the finger. I would consequently link to that the spirit of the church of Laodicea. When the Lord Jesus Christ sent that special delivery message to them in the third chapter of Revelation, just in a quick few brief words, he said, I know, I know, I know. You say that you're rich. You say that you're increased with goods. And you have need of nothing. But the assumption and the opinion that you have of yourself is drastically different than my opinion about you, Laodicea. You say you're rich. You say you're increased with goods. You say you have need of nothing. But I'll tell you, Laodicea, you need a cross. Don't you know that you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're miserable, you're wretched. Without the move of God, Brother Eddie Sandy, I'm totally out of place. I promise you, sir, I'll finish as soon as possible. We talk about Paul. Listen to his pedigree. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of, in, of, of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In modern day linguistics, I was an all-American guy. Hebrew of Hebrews. A Pharisee. My pedigree will tell you that I was converted on the Damascus Road. My pedigree would tell you, Paul would declare, that I speak with tongues more than ye all. My pedigree would tell you that I was baptized, calling upon the name of the Lord. My pedigree would tell you that I've trained in the ministry under one, the son of consolation, Barnabas, the only one that would trust me to take me in. My pedigree would tell you that I became an evangelist and a missionary, and I was ordained from the church of Antioch. My pedigree would tell you that I prayed blindness and darkness on Elohimus. And I prayed salvation on Sergius Paulus. My pedigree would tell you that I healed the cripple at Lystra. My pedigree would tell you that I opened the church of Thessalonica and Philippi and Corinth and Athens and Ephesus and Iconium and Lystra and other innumerable cities. That's what I did. And somebody said, right on, boy, do it some more. But what you don't see is the cross that he bore. Oh, we want his crown, don't we? Let's talk about his cross. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prison, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Five times received I from the Jews. Forty stripes save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day in the deep. Talk about your crown, Paul. I'd rather talk about my cross. That I may know him. In the fellowship of his glory. That I may wear my crown with him. 
that I may tell them about all the devils I put to flight. That I may talk about the church of Sterling, Thessalonica, and Carth, and Ephesus, and Philippines. That I may talk about, yay, yay, yay. And I may talk about calling a mountain. And I may talk about, yay, and I, what I do, what I. No, 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 no. No, no. That I may know him. That I may know him. And the fellowship of his cross. His cross. Of his cross. Of his suffering. Come on, Paul. Preach about your crown. Preach about what you did good, boy. Okay? Okay? A night and a day in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of mine own countrymen. In perils of the city. In perils of the wilderness. In perils of the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness. In watchings, hunger, thirst, fasting, scald, and nakedness. That's it, friend. That's where it was found. When I found the cross. I guess we all want to talk about our hardships that they're the worst. Forgive me if I come across that way. My wife is with me tonight and I'm so happy. 1974, our oldest daughter was diagnosed as a juvenile diabetic. She's been insulin dependent ever since. 1975, our baby that is not was diagnosed as a juvenile diabetic. She was to the day of her catching away. 1988, Amanda diagnosed with viral menoencephalitis. The neurologist tapped me on the chest with his clipboard at 10.30 p.m. the night of September 17, 1988, and said, Reverend, she can't live through the night. She did. 1991, my oldest daughter, seven months expecting our grandbaby, developed uncontrollable toxemia. My grandbaby was born two months premature, weighed two pounds and 11 ounces, tottered between life and death and was not supposed to live. And then my baby that had that grandchild took double pneumonia and the doctor feared for her life. Tomorrow will be my deceased daughter's 21st birthday and I shall be preaching on her birthday. You might should be here. In just another week, I'll commemorate one year of her taking. I haven't been shipwrecked. I haven't been stoned. I haven't been a night and a day in the deep. But I have a cross. But though he slay me, I've got nowhere to go but to his cross. When I'm sick, the highest authority is his cross. When I'm lonely, the highest authority is his cross. When I'm depressed, the highest authority is his cross. When I'm hurting, the highest authority is his cross. When I'm alone and fearful, the highest authority is his cross. Now Jesus, look at this, look at this. 200 pounds of 47 year old sweaty mess. A man in his right mind will not put on such a demonstration. 
I'm not insane. I'm a slave. I'm a servant. Because once I found a cross. A cross. I have no information to share with you particularly. George, you, you've been with me too many times, son. You're not afraid of anything. Run to me, please. Quick, run, run, run. And the rich young ruler ran to Jesus. And one translation said, and he fell down. And he said, good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. However, because you've inquired, I'll tell you. Clean up your morals. No adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. But all these have I kept from my youth up. And then Jesus, looking upon him, loved him. Loved him. <laughs> I love you, George. And you're going to make it more. You watch out for that boy right there. Loved him. One thing lackest thou yet. Now he mentioned several things in this one thing statement, Brother Sandy. One thing lackest thou yet, but that one thing consisted of sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, take up your cross. You can't divide them. But when Jesus said something about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. All night prayer meetings, the cross, the cross. Days of fasting, the cross, the cross. Lonely, misunderstood, the cross, the cross. The cross, the cross. Sickness, affliction, deaths, the cross, the cross. Preach, preach, pray, 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 preach. The cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. Sell, sell, take up the cross, the cross, the cross. You can't have your crown until you carry your cross. When I came up as a boy in Pentecost, we used to sing a little song that said, Look away from the cross to the glittering crown. It's always look away from the cross. Always look to the crown. Well, I think the author and the writer of the song meant well, but I fear that many of us have taken our eye off the cross, lay it down, and all we're concerned about is a crown, a crown, a crown. Bible says Jesus had three instances that he had a crown attached to him. I've given you one. That was the thorny crown that crushed his brow. Number two, in the 14th chapter of Revelation, the Bible says, and he had a golden crown. 
Number three, the Bible says, and upon his head were many crowns. If you really want to know the truth about heaven and about crowns, I would epitomize it with this simple comment. When the twenty and four elders fell on their face before the throne, they took off their crowns. I don't want this crown when I see he that's on the throne. And they put twenty-four crowns at the foot of the throne. I'm not worried about a crown, my friend. Just build my mansion next door to Jesus. And Amanda, <laughs> tell the angels that mom and dad is coming home. It's been a tough year, honey. But God has helped us carry the cross. We're going to see you again. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross for the dearest and blessed for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last to my crowns I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged let me hear some altos and tenors and exchange it someday for a crown so I'll cherish would you stand with me the old rugged cross till my truth is at Last Come on, tenors. Come on, altos. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I will cling. and magnify and worship the Lord.
sure that you recognize and realize that it seems as though this has been a day that God has been calling us back to the old rugged cross to lay aside the glitter, the glamour and to get close to that place of brokenness I want us to draw close to God right now I want us to wait in His presence to worship Him I feel a move and a special touch and a special call from God on this service Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Ah, ilama ma yashu, 